warm welcome to First Move this Friday, TGIF, but plenty to get to before the weekend begins, including the war over the warrant. Donald Trump saying he won't block the release of the Mar-a-Lago search document, plus fresh reports on exactly why federal officials launched Monday's urgent raid. We'll be live in Washington with all the latest details. Plus, as a fragile truce in the Black Sea allows desperately needed Ukrainian grain to be shipped, we'll get an update from the Deputy Minister of Agriculture on plans to scale up those exports. And an ESG, OMG, the head of asset management firm Strive says companies should dump ESG mandates and put profits before politics. We'll discuss. It's a bigger story than that, but uh, that's the top line. And from ESG to a higher Wall Street open, we do see futures in the green with the major averages on target for another week of gains. Europe, as you can also see there in the green too. Stocks on the march amid the first tantalizing hints this week, perhaps, that the U.S. inflation rate may just may have hit peak. Encouraging inflation numbers and how they might affect central bank policy. Just one of the big themes for global investors to continue to watch. With apologies again to none other than Albert Einstein, here's my highly unscientific theory of what's driving sentiment as we speak. My second annual and updated Chatterley theory of market relativity. It starts with the recent stock market propulsion, plus continued consumer consumption, and no sign really of job market dysfunction, minus negatives like the second straight quarter of GDP reduction and the ongoing Fed rate height liquidity suction. All that equals still no automatic recession assumption. Plus, the U.S. economy at a highly confusing and critical junction. The bottom line equation, I think, is E equals MC. Do not be scared, but be prepared. Sorry, couldn't help myself. OK, let's get to our top story now. We're learning more details about Monday's unprecedented FBI search of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. The Washington Post reports federal agents were looking for classified documents relating to nuclear weapons. A judge has given the former president's legal team until 3 p.m. to respond to the Justice Department's motion to unseal the search warrant and details of what the FBI took away. Overnight, Trump said that he would not oppose the release of those details. Gabby Orr joins us now. Gabby, great to have you with us. So 3 p.m. is the deadline for Trump's legal team to say whether or not they're willing to hand it over. But it's the details that's being reported by The Washington Post on what exactly may have been at Mar-a-Lago that I think is of greatest concern. Yeah, we've learned overnight that there might have been records kept at Mar-a-Lago related to nuclear weapons or nuclear nuclear codes. Now, of course, former President Donald Trump took to Truth Social, his social media platform, um, to deny this and call this a hoax, saying that there was not anything related to nuclear weapons at Mar-a-Lago. Um, his attorney, Christina Bob, was also on Fox News yesterday um, claiming that she was not aware of any nuclear weapons, but we don't know what were in those documents that were uh, or in those boxes that were carried away by FBI agents when they searched the president's primary residence in Palm Beach on Monday. Um, What we might learn today is what was in the warrant that precipitated that search at Mar-a-Lago. You mentioned that the, the judge has given 
DOJ until 3 o'clock today to get back to them on whether or not Donald Trump's attorneys plan to oppose the release of this warrant. Right now, based on the former president's reaction, we do expect them to okay the release of this warrant and also that inventory list of what exactly was seized during the FBI search at Mar-a-Lago. And I just want to read you quickly um, a statement that President Trump sent out last night um, saying that he, saying not only will I not oppose the release of documents related to this, uh, I am going a step further by encouraging the me- the immediate release of those documents. So he, it all signs point to the former president and his attorneys moving forward to have this warrant and that inventory list released. Although we won't know for another six hours um, up until that 3 p.m. deadline uh, if if something changes in the course of those six hours um, that could prevent them from actually wanting those documents released. But again, right now, all signs point to to having those items released. Yes, a key moment. And of course, it could come any time before that, too. But as you said, 3 p.m. Eastern time is the deadline. We're talking around six hours from now. Gabby Orr, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. Now, the UN is warning of a grave situation at Ukraine's main nuclear power plant after reports of fresh shelling on Thursday. It's calling for an immediate inspection of the power station, Europe's largest nuclear plant, which is currently under Russian control. David McKenzie joins us now. David, it's a consistent concern from the Ukrainians about the the risks surrounding these nuclear power plants. But for the UN now to wade in, even more concerning, I think. That's right. It's very concerning. And the IAEA, the Atomic Energy Agency, has been uh, warning about potentially catastrophic consequences for some time now. They went to the the head of that agency, went to the UN Security Council, reiterating that uh, anything is possible at this point. Uh, They say that at the moment in that vast nuclear power plant to the south of where I'm standing, there isn't uh, the immediate danger, in their words, of a radiation leak or fallout, but that it could change at any moment. Uh, Just a relatively short time ago, the Interior Ministry here in Ukraine saying they don't have, uh, quote, adequate control over that site. They've had technicians, obviously, Julia, moving back and forth, and those stayed uh, at that plant to try and keep it going, despite the fact that the Russians have controlled it since March and have been hiding military assets or uh, sheltering military assets at the scene, which is obviously a very dangerous uh, scenario when you combine the military and nuclear reactors. Uh, At the UN Security Council, you had these dueling statements from uh, the Ukrainian and Russian side. Here's the Ukrainian ambassador. Dear colleagues, None of us can stop the wind if it carries radiation. But together, we are capable of stopping a terrorist state. And if you listen to the Russian ambassador, it's striking how his language is so similar to the Ukrainians, but blaming Ukrainians for shelling the plant. We repeatedly warned our Western colleagues that if they didn't talk some sense into the Kyiv regime, then it would take the most monstrous and irrational steps. Now, the issue here is that both sides are blaming each other for this. The getting to the truth is, of course, difficult. And we do know that the Russia in this conflict has frequently used obfuscation and outright lies to describe what they are doing. 
uh, the other ambassadors at the UN Security Council reminding everyone that it was Russia that invaded Ukraine and occupied the site, breaking any number of uh, nuclear treaties uh, to have people held there hostage. The reality now, though, is this site is under uh, occasional, if not constant, bombardment. It's a very large area. So far, the nuclear reactors themselves haven't been threatened. Uh, but uh, the IAEA trying to get inside there and inspect the site, that just hasn't happened, uh, d despite assurances from the Russian side. Julia? Yeah, that inspection now uh, all the more vital. David McKenzie, thank you so much for that report. And stay with First Move for the latest on grain shipments too from Ukraine and how quickly they can be ramped up. We'll be speaking to the Deputy Agriculture Minister later in the show. For now, we'll move on. It was once dubbed Asia's world city, but troubling new numbers point to a diminished, uncertain future for Hong Kong. After years of social upheaval, strict COVID crackdowns, the number of people moving out is so great that even the city's government is being forced to acknowledge it, as Christy Lustout reports. Hong Kong is reporting a record drop in population. Over the past 12 months, over 113,000 residents have left the city. That represents a population decline of about 1.6 percent. This is the second year in a row that the population has contracted. And if you look at the chart, you'll see that it is the steepest population drop on record since at least 1961. So why is this happening? Well, I pose that question to a migration expert at the University of Hong Kong. The census gives us an early indication of this, you know, that we are witnessing a historic um, uh, departure, the result of the social unrest and the social movement here in Hong Kong, and then followed by COVID, you know, as it you know, spread across the globe. And of course, we still sit here in the present moment, the only part of the world, China and Hong Kong, you know, as a part of China, that is still living under, you know, the kinds of restrictions um, for entry, which of course is going to bar people from coming back. Experts say Hong Kong's changing political landscape, as well as its strict zero COVID policy, have prompted many people to make the hard decision to leave the city. For over 7 million residents here, we've had to endure some of the toughest pandemic rules on the planet, effectively isolating this once thriving international business and logistics hub. Just a few months ago in March, we spoke to a few Hong Kongers about why they wanted to leave. I think Hong Kong used to be one of the best places to be in every single aspect in general. And now um, it's losing a lot of uh, the edge of this plantation. If we don't leave, nothing will, nothing will change. You, you cannot change the, the government. The Hong Kong government has announced changes to its pandemic policy. In fact, this week announced that it will cut its mandatory hotel quarantine stay from seven days to three days. And that's why I'm here at home. I was able to get out of hotel quarantine early, but now at home for medical surveillance. Officials here in Hong Kong hope these changes will help bring back the city's vital force. Christy Lu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. Samsung's chief pardoned. South Korea's president ending a ban on Lee Jae-yong's return to management. Lee served part of a five-year prison sentence for bribery and embezzlement, but has been out on parole since last August. Paula Hancocks has all the latest from Seoul. Samsung Air and Vice Chairman J.Y. Lee has welcomed the special pardon that's been granted to him 
by South Korea's President Yoon Suk-yeol. Now, this was all related to a massive corruption and bribery scandal that took place back in 2016, which led to massive candlelight protests in Seoul and also to the impeachment and imprisonment of then-President Park Geun-hye. Park Geun-hye actually was pardoned by the previous South Korean president last year. Now, this is largely seen as symbolic because J.Y. Lee is already or was already a free man. He was out on parole after serving uh, 18 months uh, prison time. And it effectively is to lift any legal restrictions that there were uh, for him to go back to work full time and to run the Samsung company uh, completely. Now, the reason for this pardon, traditionally, there are presidential pardons around this time, around Liberation Day. Uh, the justice minister in, uh, uh, in announcing this said that this is, quote, to overcome the economic crisis by revitalizing the economy. This is a reason that's been given many times over the years for, uh, for pardoning white-collar crimes, for, for pardoning uh, leaders of big business, the fact that they are useful to try and help the economy. There were also uh, other uh, business leaders that were pardoned this Friday, including the Lotte chief, uh, Shin Dong-bin. Now, some civil groups have long criticized this practice of, of, uh, of pardoning white-collar crime, saying that it does lead to, to a dual uh, legal system where you can be forgiven for crimes if you are rich or if you are considered to be crucial for the economy. It hasn't completely wiped the slate clean for J.Y. Lee, though. There's still another court case that is ongoing, which relates to a merger back in, in 2015, which is believed to have helped his uh, succession chances within the company. The allegations there include illegal trading and stock price manipulation. But even before this pardon happened, J.Y. Lee was still very much front and center of Samson. In fact, back in May, he met with, uh, with U.S. President Joe Biden when he went to visit uh, Samson's semiconductor plant with the South Korean president. Paula Hancock's CNN Seoul. Okay, let me bring you up to speed some, with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Rescue teams in Mexico are still racing to free 10 miners who have been trapped below ground for a week. They were stranded when the mine flooded following the collapse of a tunnel wall. Rescue efforts have been hampered by water, rubble and poor visibility. The person thought to be the owner of the mine could face charges with illegal mining. Emmy Award-winning actress Anne H is not expected to survive, according to her family and friends, after suffering a traumatic brain injury. She has remained in a coma after crashing her car in Los Angeles a week ago. An Argentina central bank has raised its benchmark interest rate by nine and a half percentage points as inflation soars to its highest level in 20 years. It's the biggest rate increase since 2019. The key rate is going up to 69.5 percent from 60 percent only two and a half weeks after the previous rate hike. OK, straight ahead, Ukraine ships wheat, ships wheat abroad for the first time in months. I speak to the country's deputy minister of agriculture and a billionaire-backed fund wants to take social values out of investing. The founder of Strive Asset Management tells us why this is the best plan for business and for investors. That's all ahead. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move. Two more grain ships sailing under a UN-brokered deal with Russia left Ukraine's ports today. Fourteen vessels have now sailed since August 1st. Today's cargo includes the first shipment of wheat. Earlier vessels carried mainly grain for animal feed or fuel. Ukraine is also waiting for a ship to arrive that will take food to crisis-stricken Ethiopia. Joining us now is Taras Vitsotsky. He's Ukraine's first deputy minister of agriculture and food. Deputy minister, fantastic to have you with us. There is clearly a long way to go, but these initial signs on what you're achieving, hugely positive. Thank you for calling. Uh, indeed, uh, a lot of efforts uh, uh, have been done in order to enable export of agricultural products of food, actually, to the third countries which critically need them. And are we going to see more of those deliveries? It seems you've initially gone from fuel and animal feed, and now it's vital supplies of, of grains to feed hungry places in the world. Uh, yes. Uh, first of all, we are focusing so far on food exports, uh, mainly wheat, which is the main crop. Uh, so far, we have uh, already declared and shipped around uh, 400,000 tons. And we are expecting to increase these volumes uh, f- to a few millions per month. Uh, with uh, our goal is uh, to bring uh, the food, wheat, and other types of wheat to the people, 100 millions of people, which need this food all around the world. So just so that my audience understands, in, in peacetime, I believe Ukraine would export up to 6 million tons of grain a month. Uh, so you're talking, you hope to get to a point where you're doing 2 to 3 million tons, so less than half to half of what you were doing in peacetime. Uh, indeed, uh, in peacetime, we were having on average 6 million tons per month. Mm-hmm. So far, we have been able to done uh, uh, in July up to 3 million tons. Wow. We hope to come uh, around 4 million tons per, uh, per month. So it's like um, two sets of what we had during the peace times. I mean, that would be a huge achievement. I think as the days pass... And we keep hearing about ships successfully transiting in and out of these ports and going on to their destination safely. I believe you're getting more and more applications for countries saying, look, we'll now help. We'll provide ships. What more can you tell us about those offers of help? How quickly can you utilize them? And and obviously that plays into how quickly you can ramp up uh, exports and and imports more of ships coming in to, to collect more grain. Uh, indeed, so far it's uh, going as planned. Uh, I'd like to say, fingers crossed. Uh, we uh, are starting receiving applications for the ships to come in, because before most of them were just uh, going out, the ones which were blocks before the war. Uh, now it's uh, uh, tens of applications to come in. Actually, within this initiative, we are able to work or do up to 80 ships per month, which can be up to even 3 million tons per month, only by this route. Of course, everything depends on the security issues. We are hoping that international guarantees keep going working and these security issues will be in place, and that will meet 
more and more ships and more and more food exported to the uh, countries which need this food. Can I ask how many of these shipments, and I appreciate it's early days, you've actually received money for? Because this is vitally important for the sustainability of the Ukrainian economy too, is, is being compensated for the grain that you're now getting to people. Uh, of course, uh, for Ukrainian economy, agricultural sector is very important. Mm-hmm. Even before the war, it was up to 20% of GDP was agriculture. Now it's even more. Uh, we are calculating that with the uh, current uh, international prices on agricultural commodities and these volumes we plan to move on, it can be up to 1 billion US dollars uh, per month, which is uh, for our agriculture is very important and uh, big money. This is the minimum. If everything goes even better, uh, it can reach even up to two, mi- two billion US dollars per month. But first of all, our, pre- uh, our goal is to reach this indicator of up to one billion US dollars per month. And, and allow your farmers to, to benefit from the higher prices on world markets. As, as painful as they can be for trying to buy this grain, it, it is actually good for, for your farmers who've struggled over the last several months to even plant. Uh, within the last five months, our farmers were not able even to receive the price which uh, could cover the costs. So indeed, the uh, opening of this route and the uh, increasing of the price farmers can reach is very vital because already in a month they should uh, keep planting winter crops. So we are hoping that uh, the prices will cover the costs and uh, will create the necessary conditions to keep operating Ukrainian farmers. Deputy Minister, can I ask you why you believe Russia is, at least for now, complying with the terms of this agreement and, and whether it gives you any hope that perhaps in the future some kind of ceasefire, peace agreement could be negotiated? So our belief and hope is, first of all, uh, not on Russia, but on other international partners. We signed the agreement with Turkey and United Nations, and we are supported by the Western countries. And so we are, first of all, believing that the guarantees provided by Turkey, United Nations, and our partners, the Western countries, will work. And uh, uh, this uh, provides us some stability, at least in uh, exporting of agricultural commodities. So far, we can't comment and analyze uh, how it's going or not influence the war in, uh, in general. But within this initiative, once again, we are uh, relying on the international partners. We signed the agreement and which promise to support. I understand. And it is, to your point, early days as well. And very quickly, can I just ask you about the current planting season with your farmers? The last time we spoke to you said you believe this coming harvest is going to be around 40 percent lower than what was achieved last year. Can I ask you about things other than wheat? How have they managed to to plant other crops, for example, corn, oats? So with uh, such crops as oat or rye or buckwheat and others, we have the same results as previous year. Uh, with corn, we also have a, a 
planning to have unfortunately less uh, not 40 percent less but uh, at least 30 uh, percent less because uh, still uh, uh, there are lots of challenges in planting during the war but uh, if uh, this initiative is going well we are still hoping that uh, our farmers can not only keep but increase planting and increase production already next year Fantastic. I mean, not without challenges, not without a lot of work, but um, certainly a number of positive news to share. So thank you for joining us today. I'm Taras Vitsotsky there, the first Deputy Minister of Agriculture and Food for Ukraine. Thank, thank you, you for calling. Thank you. OK, after the break, focus on making money, not taking stands. A bold message to U.S. corporations from a new asset management firm. The Chief comes up next. to first move high fives hand cheers and fist pumps there at the new york stock exchange and stocks are up and running this friday it's been a choppy week so far for the major averages the s&p 500 remains on track however for its fourth straight week of gains wall street benefiting from this week's better than expected inflation data the dow coming into today's session down just eight percent now so far this year the s&p and the nasdaq cutting their yearly losses substantially too as you can see on that chart in front of you the nasdaq in fact bouncing from bear market levels with tech now up more than 20 percent from recent lows fang favorites like apple and amazon performing even better both stocks rising some 30% in the past two months from the lows. Let's be clear, Apple benefiting from reports that it's asking suppliers to keep production steady for the launch of its upcoming iPhone 14, a sign that it sees continued strong smartphone demand. Market perils, however, for investors in U.S.-listed Chinese stocks. Five state-owned companies say they will delist voluntarily from the New York Stock Exchange amid heightened tensions between the United States and China. Shares of three of those firms, China Life Insurance, the Aluminium Corporation of China and PetroChina, sharply lower in early trade. Alibaba, another Chinese firm listed on Wall Street, falling in sympathy too. Not falling so much for some of those names, but as you can see that in front of you on the chart. Now stay out of politics. Focus on your core business. That's the message to public companies from my next guest, the founder of Strive Asset Management and author of the book Woke Inc. He says, quote, I'm fed up with corporate America's game of pretending to care about justice in order to make money. And when Tesla was kicked out of the S&P ESG index back in May, he tweeted, perhaps once BlackRock replaces three directors on Tesla's board, just like they did to Exxon, the ESG kings will add Tesla and Elon Musk to the list. This week, he launched an ETF urging major energy companies to end environmental, social and government mandates with the combined aim of allowing investors to build their nest eggs and avoid politics. Joining us now, founder and executive chairman of Strive Asset Management, Vivek Ramaswamy, joins us now. Vivek, fantastic to have you on the show. It's way more complicated than that, but I tried to distill your message into a few lines there. Just explain what you hope to provide to clients and what you will and won't be saying to companies that you're investing in for them. Absolutely. So the goal is to provide a new choice and actually a true diversity of voice in corporate America's boardrooms, starting with the energy industry. What we will be mandating U.S. energy companies and all companies eventually to do is to focus exclusively on delivering excellent products and services to your customers over any other agenda, including social or political agendas. Here's what we won't be saying. 
abide by these ESG standards or CSR standards or any other three-letter acronym that stands for values other than a focus on products and profitability. And Julia, I think that's going to be good both for the economy, but I think even for our democracy, where citizens can take politics out of the boardroom and go back to debating politics in the political arena. So that's the broader vision here. There'll be people screaming at the uh, the camera, though, and admittedly there will be people that aren't, saying that you can't separate out the performance of a business from society, from ensuring better pay, perhaps, for your workers, for care of the environment, because all these things are fundamental now to operating businesses. You can't separate them. What's your response to that? So, look, there's a lot that goes into delivering excellent products and services to your customers, and workers are an important part of that. So are a lot of other elements. But the point that we bring to the table at Strive is that should still be the sole ultimate goal of a business. Deliver excellent products and services, do it for a profit. And Julia, that's what allows for capitalism, American capitalism, but also global capitalism to deliver on its promise of providing great goods and services to people who need them, lifting people up, including people at the bottom, up from poverty. That's how capitalism delivers on its promise. But I also think it's really important that other questions like racial inequity or climate change. These are fundamental, important questions that we have to grapple with, so important that we shouldn't leave it to business leaders to offer a one-sided answer to that question from some cloistered boardroom in Manhattan, but instead should put it back to the citizens to debate in the public square through the democratic process and resolve that through the beauty of a democracy. So that's actually the broader vision here, not saying that those aren't important questions to address, but they're so fundamental and so important that they ought to be addressed in a democracy where every citizen's voice and vote counts equally, rather than allowing a small group of corporate autocrats in the boardroom to settle political questions that they have no business meddling in. So that's actually the broader vision, which is neither a left-wing or a right-wing vision, but it's a vision about restoring the integrity of American capitalism and democracy. And I think the same principles apply in Western Europe and around the world as well. You know, I think it's a very important message and an important debate to be having. And I think sometimes when you're talking about, and I've seen your ETF that you've launched discussed as anti-ESG or anti-woke is the is the familiar term. I think the message can get lost. In your book, Woke Inc., you basically said that um, corporate America at times, and you're quite punchy with it, pretends to care about something other than profits in order to gain more, more power and more profits of each. And I think this cuts to the heart of the challenge here with something like ESG is that in principle, the idea you're saying is really good. However, it's actually that important that we can't mess it up with companies whitewashing, greenwashing, perhaps making statements because they feel they have to, and actually not necessarily because they're acting on it. Focus on profitability and the rest will follow. Is that the message? Yeah, look, I, there's a number of critiques I level in the book and, and in my other public comments, but at the top of the list is the dishonesty. I don't appreciate it when large asset managers, when large financial institutions talk out of both sides of their mouth. I think people should be straightforward about what they stand for and what they don't. And At the end of the day, I do think that there's this game where you pretend to care about something other than profit and power precisely to gain more profit and power. And Strive's goal is to actually bring just a fresh voice where we say what we actually stand for and are very clear about what we don't stand for. So let's say you're a capital owner who wants to advance social or environmental agendas. In a free society, you're free to do that with your own money. Strive's very transparent that Strive would not be a good home for your money. Strive's funds would not be a good home for your capital. Every, ca- every, every citizen deserves to be actually respected by a fiduciary who looks after their money. But the problem right now is the other large asset managers like BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard are effectively taking the money of everyday citizens who want just to maximize profit with their dollars 
but are using that to advance social and political agendas that most of those clients don't agree with, but they don't know it. So it's the dishonesty, it's the slate of hand, it's the fiduciary breach that bothers me the most. And I think if we get back to a place where there's a true diversity of views, better representing the true diversity of the views of everyday citizens in this country who invest in our markets, that's gonna get us back to a better place versus right now where we have a monolithic ESG-centric voice represented in capital markets in the asset management industry and in the boardrooms of America's public companies. So that's what I hope we fix at Strive. Yeah, you know, it's a fascinating point. And, and I, I would ask you who's pushing them. I mean, you, you mentioned a few names, BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, the biggest. That's, what, $22 trillion worth of, of people's money. They have enough power, enough corporate power, in particular in the companies that they're investing in, surely to say what they truly feel. But are you saying that the likes of Larry Fink, for example, over at BlackRock is, is afraid of being cancelled for saying what he actually thinks? So he sort of goes with the flow. And as a result, investors go with that flow because they've chosen to give them money and they just want to make sure they've got a pension in the future. Are you saying he's a hypocrite? I think it's really clear these firms, I love the way you said it, Julie. I mean, these firms do just go with the flow. They're like a flag. They look good, but they wave in whatever direction they perceive the wind to be blowing on a given day. A couple of years ago, that was getting on the ESG gravy train. It was a great marketing strategy, raised a lot of funds. Many ESG funds are very similar to non-ESG funds, except they charge a higher fee. Yet at the same time, now that he's been facing backlash in the last six months from, say, red states in the United States, he's beginning to say, well, I actually don't want to be the world's environmental police. My view is just be honest. Just say what you stand for. Treat people with res- treating people with respect means treating them with the respect of telling them not only that you agree with them, but even when you have a different point of view, to state that different point of view, but to say you disagree. And I think that that's what happens when you become too big. When one firm is managing $10 trillion, it tries to be everything to everyone, and as a result, is nothing to anyone. And so that was what we embodied with the launch of our first exchange-traded fund, Strive. We just rang the New York Stock Exchange bell earlier this week. It's trading on the New York Stock Exchange. The ticker is really simple, D-R-L-L, drill. It's a U.S. energy index fund. It delivers a mandate to U.S. energy companies to drill, to frack, to do whatever allows you to be most successful over the long run without regard to environmental or social considerations that are important but should be addressed through the political process instead. And you know what? If For those folks who agree with that message and endorse that message, this can be a great option to have exposure to U.S. energy stocks. For the folks who don't want to deliver that message to corporate America's boardrooms as a shareholder, there's plenty of other options today. But what was missing, Julia, was an option that unapologetically delivered the message that we're delivering. And Strive will not try to be everything to everyone because there's truly a true diversity of views that deserve to be represented. That's part of what it means to be a respectful market participant. It's part of what it means to be a respectful citizen. Do you know part of the problem is, though, people are afraid of being cancelled. If they say what they actually think, they're afraid of being cancelled. And I think there is a middle ground here where people do care about the environment. They also do want to have a, a pension fund that, that makes money for them. And perhaps there are issues that, that they don't want to get involved in, but that they have to pick and choose. And your bigger point, and this is a really important point, I think, from the book was that you're afraid in a way of businesses not doing enough but paying lip service to it, but sucking the oxygen out of places like Washington, D.C. So in a way, creating tribes within society that have certain views, pushing us to extremes, but still not taking action. So there's no room for for politics to serve the purpose. And I think the counter to that in my case would be that I think people have got sick of waiting for politicians to act. And so they're, they're sort of pushing businesses in a direction. So I'm not sure who's pushing who and what the fix is, Vivek. So that's why you're on my show. What is the fix well, here? That- 
Yeah, so look, I think the fix is restoring the integrity of both capitalism and democracy by separating one from the other. And you put your finger on exactly the right point. That's the debate we need to be having. But I right. think we can actually, rather than sacrificing our politics and throwing in the towel and saying we should give it to corporations the power to solve our social problems instead, I think we should do the hard work of fixing our politics, to go back to a place where every citizen's voice and vote does count equally. And you know what, you're right. We live in this moment of fear where I have never seen a greater gap between what people are willing to say in private and what people are willing to say in public. And part of the problem is when the private sector becomes politicized, people have a fear of losing their job, fear of putting food on the dinner table for actually speaking their minds. To me, that isn't America, that isn't a free society. And what we really need to restore is a place where, you know what, when you're the only person in the room who believes what you do, you should actually be able to speak your mind, whether that's a, a DEI meeting at work, whether that's a corporate board meeting. And what you'll probably discover is you weren't the only person in the room who believed what you did. And we can go back to debating ideas freely without fear of cancellation. At the same time, we're only gonna get there if we actually separate this use of economic force, the economic cudgel, to punish people who defect from the acceptable ideas that can be voiced today. So I think that's where we need to go. And at the end of the day, if we can go back to restoring the power of democracy, the power of our politics, then we can get to shared solutions to shared challenges from inequity to climate change to whatever it may be, sort that out through our politics, and then the private sector can be one of those places where we come together across our political divisions, across our tribal divisions, to say that we're gonna put politics out of the private sector, but that's how we unite to build things and create things together through the system of free market capitalism. So that's the broader vision here. That's what motivates me to do this. And very quickly, your view also is that CEOs can have a view, they can have an opinion and they can take a stand. It just shouldn't necessarily be forced upon the business and therefore the investors in that business as a result. Because you've taken a stand and you've had to make tough choices with a, a company that you founded in the past because you were criticised for not saying enough after the death of George Floyd. You were then criticised for saying that a, a US president shouldn't be thrown off social media after the, the capital attacks on January the 6th. Vivek, should CEOs be able to have an opinion and it not reflect on the broader company? Because we don't separate that today either. I think it's a great point. We can draw that distinction because every CEO is still a citizen. And speaking in your capacity as a citizen, that's a great thing. However, the problem, in my view, comes up when you use corporate resources and corporate power to be able to foist your views on the rest of society. And my view is in a true democracy, everyone's voice and vote counts equally. Whether you're a CEO or whether you're somebody who lives in a rural community 100 miles away, in a democracy on political questions, everyone's voice and vote ought to count equally, unadjusted by the number of dollars they control in the market. Which ideas rise to the top in the marketplace of ideas is different than the rules that govern which products rise to the top in a marketplace of products. And so that's what I say is a CEO's view on where to invest capital, the CEO's view should count for more. But the CEO's view on how to address climate change or racial justice, no CEO's view is any more important than any other citizen. That's what I think we need to get back to. Okay, now I get the message. This is not anti-ESG. This is making it correct and appropriate and demystifying it and stopping lip service. We will reconvene on this, my friend. It was a great book. I liked it. And I read it yesterday after I Thank spoke you. to you at 7.30 p.m. Ouch, I'm sleep deprived. Thank you very much. Great to have you on the show. Vivek Ramaswamy there, sure. founder and executive chairman of Strive Asset Management. We'll speak again soon. Thank you. We're back after this.
Welcome back to First Move. After months of dry conditions, British authorities have declared a drought across large swathes of England. That means water companies are allowed to implement drought plans more easily to protect supplies. Heat waves and long periods of minimal rain have left much of Europe parched. In Germany, the Rhine River has fallen to exceptionally low levels, disrupting river-based freight and adding to pressure on industry supply chains. CNN's Sam Abdelaziz joins us now from London. Sam, good to have you with us. I saw comments from one senior scientist at the European Commission saying, I think Europe's on course to suffer its worst drought in 500 years this year. And it's it's not just the UK, it's everywhere. Absolutely. These are unprecedented conditions. England experiencing its driest July in decades since the 1930s. And you can see behind me in this park here in Greenwich Park in London just how yellow and parched that land is. London has basically seen no rain in weeks now. So nearly half of England, many parts of England now, uh, an official drought declared. As you said, that means that water companies can begin to impose bans on using hose pipes, for example, so that you can't water your garden, so that you can't wash your car or your windows. But there's a call for everyone really to step up, Julie. I want to read you a statement uh, from the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, issued after after this drought uh, became official. He said, while I'm urging water companies to act swiftly to stop the leaks, which are leading to millions of, gall- of gallons of water being wasted every day, Londoners can also play their part. By saving water as much as possible at home, we need everyone to pull together to help conserve this precious natural resource. And that's really what it's all coming down to, Julia, not just here in England, but across Western Europe, where we're also seeing very similar conditions. This is the fourth heat wave uh, that the region is seeing just this summer. You know, that means emergency services have been stretched to the limit. France, for example, essentially sent an emergency plea for help to the EU. They now have member states from Romania from Germany sending in their firefighters to help put out blazes uh, in the southwest of France. In Italy, these drought-like conditions mean that some farmers have lost up to 80% of their harvest. Uh, The River Thames here uh, as well, extremely low. We're looking at the same in Germany with the Rhine. There, the water level's extremely low and could potentially impact shipping. And of course, the bigger picture here, Julia, is of course the climate crisis. Uh, Experts say the human-induced climate crisis will only make, will only aggravate these conditions in the future. Sam Abdelaziz in London there for us. Thank you for that. Now, on that note, still to come, a new study raising concerns about how fast climate change is weakening Antarctica's glaciers. Details after this. Welcome back. A troubling report on the ever-worsening climate crisis and its effects on the world's largest ice sheet. New research out of NASA's Jess Proportion Laboratory estimates that 12 trillion tonnes of ice from Antarctica's coastal glaciers has been lost since 1997. That is twice as much as scientists previously thought. Bill Weir joins us now with more. Bill, always fantastic to have you on the show. I think for most people, it sounds like an enormous number, but we truly need your wisdom and context to understand (laughs) the implications really of what this means. Well, if you think of Antarctica like a big bowl of ice, a big bowl of glaciers, there are these shelves around the edges that hold them in, that keep them from sliding into the sea, which would then rise sea levels around the world. Well, with new technology, better satellites, sonar, and those sorts of things, it looks like there are twice as many leaks in those dams around the edges as previously thought. Enough of those have crumbled off to cover an area the size of Switzerland. Meanwhile, warmer seas underneath are thinning the glaciers and the shelves there, and it has massive implications for future sea level rise. Cities around the world are already building in models as to how high it could get and how, how much time, ultimately, they have to adapt 
it could be faster now. And see, it seems like all the new realities are so much more extreme and are happening so much faster than the predictions. Wow. So, okay, so we've got the thinning, as you described it, I think, is that the seawater heats up and that melts the ice. And then this natural, what's normal natural cycle of the carving of ice. But what we're saying is it's all happening far quicker than we thought. But just in terms of the broader consequences, one of the things that I read about this was that Antarctica holds 88 percent of the sea level potential of all the world's ice. So this happening in this particular spot has global implications for for sea levels, which obviously we know, just based on what we're already seeing around the world, devastating effects. And and the thing is, Julia, that for the last decade or so, there's been sort of cold comfort, uh, pun intended, that Antarctica, the South Pole, was stable while the North Pole, everybody saw, was was really on fire. Greenland's ice, which seemed that is enough to raise sea levels by a a meter or, or a couple of feet. But now this new concern at the bottom of the world just adds to the urgency of the situation. And when you say stable, you mean because the natural cycle of carving is, is replaced by regrowth ordinarily, yeah, and, and that would the, hold it stable. Exactly. And, in, and the dynamics of the weather systems in the southern hemisphere are different from those on the North Pole. Uh, so there is also a new study that just came out yesterday. We thought the North Pole and the, the Arctic was warming two to three times faster than the rest of the planet. Turns out it's four times Uh, faster. And that affects weather patterns over Europe and North America. These heat domes that sit, a lot of the new science thinks that that's directly related uh, to as the Arctic loses ice, uh, all that open seawater absorbs a lot more heat. It's the amplification that is accelerating things. Uh, We've seen about a, you know, uh, the sea level rise has been gradual, but now it's like a hockey stick going up. Yeah, I mean, part of the challenge of taking action, wherever you look in terms of um, tackling climate change, is just trying to quantify the damage and and understand what's going on. So at least this is a further step on that front. Now we just need to do more to take action. Bill, it is always great to have you with us. Thank you. You Bill Weir. Okay, and that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next, and I'll see you on Monday. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.